Friends, will you join me in prayer? Lord, we ask that you will gather our thoughts and the meditations of our hearts to be pleasing to you. Help us, Lord, to glorify you with the attitude with which we listen and also the words by which I speak. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, have you ever mistaken somebody for someone else? How many have done that before? Uh, okay, we've got honest people here. Uh, I've done it many times. Let me tell you about it and be prepared to cringe. Uh, just a couple of months back, I was at a lunch with one of our small groups and I sat down next to one of our church sisters and I turned to her and I asked her, where's your husband? <laughs> and uh, yeah, she, she was very quick to tell me that she's not who I'm thinking of <laughs> and I had mistaken her for another sister in church. Uh, supposedly, I'm not the first one, so I don't feel so bad. Uh, but I quickly apologised and uh, thankfully she was quick to forgive. But this isn't the first time something like that has happened. And sometimes when I mistake someone for somebody else, a very long and confusing conversation follows before I realise that I have mistaken them for someone else. But there's still one incident that I remember very clearly. Um, back in KL Wesley when I was a youth, okay, about 19, 20, 21, like that, uh, there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of people who pass through KL Wesley. For those of you who are not familiar with that church, uh, it's surrounded by two schools, okay, at least two. There is uh, uh, also a basketball association. Uh, people pass through the road all the time. That in KL Wesley, there is uh, a boys' brigade, a girls' brigade, a daycare, a kindergarten, over a thousand people in membership whom I clearly do not know all of them. And so there's a lot of people passing through KL Wesley. But I remember one day, after one of our worship practices, I was just waiting outside, um, outside the building uh, where the cars drive by. And I saw one of our church friends drive by. And so I waved at her. And through the, through the, the windscreen, I could see her wave back you know, very enthusiastically. But as she passed by, I looked closer and I saw at the side profile Actually, she's not who I think she is. She's a total stranger. I don't know her. And so she, she still waved back at me. So uh, either she, she also mistook me for somebody else or she thought, oh, this church is very friendly. Uh. Uh, never mind, just wave at random strangers. Uh, okay, if, if hearing those stories make you cringe, uh, <laughs> don't worry. It happens, happens to me all the time. So... Today, we are looking at an episode in the Bible where Barnabas and Paul are also in this case of a mistaken identity. But they're not just mistaken for another person. They're mistaken for gods. Okay? And unlike me, you know, where I, I mistake somebody else, uh, somebody for someone else, it just results in embarrassment for me. For them, the implications are far greater. Lah. But before we zoom in on them, Let's just have a, a quick look at where we are in our series on Acts. Now, the believers have been scattered uh, to spread the gospel to the Judeans, the Samaritans, and to the Gentiles at the ends of the earth. 
Uh, this scattering was due to uh, a great persecution that started uh, with the stoning of Stephen and then Paul, the Pharisee, right? He was championing that persecution. But in chapter 9, he encounters Jesus. He is transformed. His life turns around. Instead of persecuting the gospel, he teaches it, okay? He, he brings it and, and spreads it. And so, uh, throughout a lot of his teachings, um, his, one of his partners, the, his main partner, uh, is another believer named Barnabas. Now, in chapter 13 onwards, Barnabas and Saul begin their missionary journey, okay? And so, the map's a little small, but generally you can see the, the red arrow uh, and the direction it's going in. Uh, and so, that, that is their journey, to bring the gospel to Cyprus, to Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium. Eventually, they come to Lystra and Derby in today's passage before returning to Antioch. Okay, so this is known as Paul's first missionary journey. It won't be his last. He will have a few more. Oh, by the way, when they are in Cyprus, the book of Acts starts referring to Saul as Paul. Uh, and don't, don't misunderstand that his name change came with a com his conversion. Huh? It's, not, it's not that case. Rather, that Paul was his Roman name. Okay? So he was already known as Paul, but to the Romans. Okay? So uh, this is in keeping with his ministry to, to more Gentiles. And so more people who are, are more familiar with Roman names rather than Jewish names. Okay, so from this point on, not just the book of Acts, but I too will refer to Saul as Paul, okay? Now, in these places, as they went through the, these various cities, Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel in the synagogues, okay? And a synagogue uh, is uh, basically a place, a Jewish place of worship and learning, okay? You can think of it as a little bit like a, a mini church chapel sort of thing. Okay, and many came to faith because of their preaching in these synagogues. But the Jews in these places who did not accept the gospel and did not believe, they would oppose them. Okay, and often they won't just say, No, you're wrong. They will try and stir up the rest of the city against them and get them, try to get them executed, thrown out, whatever. So it also seems like as Barnabas and Paul were, were going through these various cities, it seems as though their opponents, these Jewish opponents, were also following them across the various cities just to oppose and persecute them. And it is in Lystra, amidst all these circumstances, that our passage is set in today. And so that brings me to our big idea today that we can expect the work of the gospel to not be without its challenges and opposition. Okay, so this is just a takeaway message. We can expect the work of the gospel to not be without its challenges and opposition. I'd like us to look at three things about the gospel that we can learn uh, from today's passage. Firstly, cross-cultural confusion. Secondly, courageous truth-telling. And thirdly, certain opposition. Okay, let's look at the first point. 
Now, as I mentioned earlier, when Paul and Barnabas preached to the various cities in their missionary journey, they often started in the synagogues, right, where the Jewish people are, and the Jewish people are learning about God, okay, uh, the, the God of the Israelites. Now, they, they already believed in the God of Israel there. But it seems that in Lystra, there was no synagogue, or at least one is not mentioned okay, in, in Scripture. And so that means that there might not have been a very large Jewish population there, uh, and probably most of the occupants of Lystra were Gentiles. Yeah. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, uh, they... they uh, so, Paul uh, healed a, a man who was born lame from birth, okay? Uh, and he's healed, and then the crowd sees what Paul had done. Now, I'm not going to focus on this healing because it is not the first time we come across something like this, okay? Many, many times, uh, not just in the gospel, but also other places in Acts. So, I, I don't want to focus on, on the healing. I want to focus on the, the response of the crowd. So, when the, the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form and they called Barnabas, uh, Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes. And so, one possible reason, uh, so just, just a little bit of uh, info, one possible reason why they mistook Paul and Barnabas for Zeus and Hermes of all the gods is because in that area, there was a myth, a local myth that was written by a Roman poet named Ovid, okay, somewhere about a uh, hundred years or so before the events of Acts 14. Okay, so you, you can imagine that, that there's this story that's been going around for over a hundred years or so about, uh, and, and so in this myth, in this story, Zeus and Hermes who to the Romans are known as Jupiter and Mercury. You know, the, the Greek gods were just assimilated, taken by the, the Romans. Uh, Zeus and Hermes came to this area around Lystra and they destroyed the city because no one gave them any hospitality other than one elderly couple who was allowed to escape and live. Okay, so this was a, a, a legend, a story that was going around in that area of Lystra. And so with this local myth being known in the area, the people of Lystra uh, could have recognized any divine activity to be the work of Zeus and Hermes. So they, when they saw, wow, miraculous healing, it must be what we've been hearing about for so many years. Zeus and Hermes have returned. See, there are two of them. They must be Zeus and Hermes. Whatever their reasons for believing that Paul and Barnabas were Hermes and Zeus, uh, the crowd wanted to worship them, wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Even the priests of the temple of Zeus nearby uh, wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So at first, Paul and Barnabas, no idea what's going on because they're shouting in another language, that they, the, the local language. Huh? And, and so they, they didn't know what was going on. Paul and Barnabas who have communicated in Greek, which is the international language of that time. But when they discovered, I mean, when they saw bulls coming and wreaths and people probably bowing down and all that, they, they realized what was happening, they were horrified. 
okay, and they, they tore their clothes, which is a sign of grief, like, uh, don't do this. Uh, and they quickly tried to correct this case of mistaken identity. And so one of the things that I want to draw out from this passage is that in Lystra here, we see one of the earliest examples of cross-cultural missions. Uh, of course, there are others prior in, in Acts, like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, or Peter and the household of Cornelius. But here, it is quite a clear picture of Paul and Barnabas going to a foreign culture for the purpose of preaching the gospel to those living there. Now, before you switch off and think, you know, cross-cultural missions, this, this sermon is for missionaries. Uh, this sermon is for the missions committee. This sermon is for Nicholas and Dominic, <laughs> people going to, to Long Lamai. Let me remind you that the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations is given not just to the missionaries or to the missions committee or to Nicholas and Dominic, but to all of us who follow Jesus. And if you think that you're only experiencing another culture when you go to another country or you interact with another race or somebody who speaks another language, let me just simply ask you this. Do you always understand what other generations do and why they do it? For those who have grandchildren who are teenagers, can you understand what they are saying when they talk to other teenagers? Uh, even though they're speaking the same language, right? It can seem very alien, the words that they use, the stuff that they're talking about. And the same is true when you flip it around. For teenagers, when you hear your grandparents and their, their friends talking about the good old days, a lot of it is alien, right? You, you, you don't have that experience. The concept of, for example, unlimited music streaming by subbing to Spotify, it can be as strange to somebody as the concept of one song per vinyl, flipping it over for another song. Okay, two groups of people have no idea what's going on right now. Okay, but these are just two extremes of uh, how, how things, <laughs> things evolve uh, over this generation gap. It doesn't even have to be so extreme. Uh, just the other day, I was at KFC, okay, having lunch, and I saw something that stuck very clearly in my head. As I was having lunch, I noticed that there was this long table. You know, they have those, those long tables with higher chairs, right? And there's probably about six to, six to eight uh, seats on that table. And there was this long table full of people in their late teens, okay, they, they should have been about their, maybe about 17, 18, 19 maybe. Uh, and they clearly knew each other because they were all sitting very close to each other. Okay, you don't, you, if you go and join table with strangers, you don't go and like sit right next to each other, right? So full table, uh, full of people who knew each other, but for the entire time that I was having my lunch, I noticed that for such a full table with so many people there, it was very quiet. Not a single word was spoken, and it's not like they were in a fight or anything like that. They were all using their phones while they're eating, okay? And I know what the adults are thinking, uh, kids these days are so antisocial, don't know how to relate to people. Uh, but for all we know, they could be socializing through their phones, 
right? And commenting on the same posts, uh, playing the same game, whatever, and that's their version of socializing and relating to one another. So you can already see that there is a cultural gap across ages. And of course, in Malaysia, you don't have to go on a mission trip to encounter somebody of a different race or a different culture. Many of our neighbours, many of our colleagues, our friends, uh, different races, different cultures. But even if you lived in a neighbourhood that prefers a certain race, or you worked in a company that prefers a certain race, or you study in a school that is full of a certain race, uh, and, and they're all very similar to you, you can be sure that you are still experiencing always one of the biggest cultural gaps ever. And that's because not everybody follows Jesus Christ. The cultural differences between Christians and non-Christians are very, very significant, or at least they are supposed to be very different because Christians are supposed to be living very differently from the rest of the world. Not only are we doing things that are alien to the world, like praying, worshipping, loving our enemies, turning the other cheek, and so on, but we're also doing similar things for very different reasons, like working at our job, yes, but to glorify God by doing our best, or to be a witness at our workplace. Earning money, like the rest of the world, yes, but to offer to God and to give to those in need. Or maybe even helping other people, just like everyone else, but because we are thankful for what Christ has done for us, not just to feel good about ourselves or to earn karma or anything like that. Uh, if you look at Paul and Barnabas' approach to preaching the gospel in the synagogue in the other cities, they reasoned from the angle that Jews would understand. They, so if you look at previous passages that talk about how they, they preached in the synagogues, they talked about their ancestors like Abraham. They talked about sin. They talked about the law of Moses. They quoted from the Old Testament. But their approach to the people of Lystra, as was read to us just now, was quite different. They don't mention Abraham, Moses, David, uh, the law. They talk about creation. They talk about God bringing rain, growing crops. And this reminds us of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22. He, Paul says, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means... I might save some. And so my point is, cross-cultural missions, not just for the missionaries or those who go on mission trips, but there are cross-cultural opportunities all around us. And just as how missionaries prepare themselves to go on a mission to a foreign culture, they learn the language, they study the customs. We too, to a certain extent, need to do the same to share the gospel effectively to those who are different from us. It's not always very effective to just you know, tell people, come to church, uh, come to Alpha, come to MYF, come to MW, come to MSF. We need to be aware of any cultural gaps in behavior, in motives, in values, 
And we need to seek to bridge that gap with understanding, not to compromise and be you know, no different from the rest of the world, but to know how to bring the gospel across in a way that isn't so alien. Let me just give you a practical example. For those who are in the workplace, you might have a colleague who is a pre-believer, and it is no secret that they often have casual sexual relationships. And in trying to share the gospel, you might say, what you are doing is sinful in God's eyes. Repent. Ask Jesus for salvation or you are going to suffer in hell forever after you die. How do you think that would be received in today's modern culture? Uh, I'm pretty sure this sort of approach will not go down well in our modern culture. You can very well shut them off completely from Christianity or other Christians and any other gospel opportunity. But if you spend the time and the effort to be their friend, to try to understand things from their perspective, try to understand why they do what they do, you might instead, in trying to share the gospel, you might instead say to them, I know you don't feel very loved. Uh, you don't feel like you deserve someone's long-term commitment to you but what you're doing is going to just keep hurting you and you won't find real lasting love where you have been looking. Let me share with you how I have discovered a real lasting love that doesn't factor in your past or what you can bring to the relationship. Now, there's still no guarantee that they would receive Christ after that, but I would think that they would at least be more open to the second approach than the first one. Now's a good time to look at our first question to reflect on or discuss in our families or, or small groups. What are some cross-cultural opportunities around you to share the gospel? And again, we're not just talking about uh, different language, different race but people who are just different from you in certain ways. Uh, how can you prepare yourself to share the gospel more effectively there? And for the kids, what can you do to share Jesus and his love with people who are different from you? Okay, let's take two minutes for this.
Okay, let's look at our second point for today. Courageous truth-telling. Now, after the cross-cultural confusion of um, you know, the, the Paul and Barnabas are mistaken for gods, uh, we see Paul and Barnabas quickly you know, try to stop the crowd from worshipping them. And they say, you know, why are you doing this? Uh, we are human like you. Uh, instead, they quickly try to explain about God, that God is the one who is responsible for the miracle, not them. And he was the creator who has been providing for them all this while, not the gods whom they worshipped or the gods whom they thought they were. And when Paul points out, he says here in verse 15, he says, uh, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. And when he points out these worthless things in the lives of the crowd, uh, he is talking about their sin. Okay, He's talking about their their. Uh, sinful lifestyle and all that, but he is also calling out their devotion to idols. And so, in, in a sense, he is lumping in their gods in this statement of worthless things. Now, remember, the, the priest of the temple of Zeus is right there trying to sacrifice to them, and they are surrounded by a crowd that is clearly very, very devoted to Zeus and Hermes. And he calls basically their gods uh, worthless things together with everything else that they have been doing. Now, despite the protests of Paul and Barnabas, the people of Lystra insisted, you know, because they're so convinced that they were really the gods whom they worshipped. Maybe they thought, you know, they're, they're just trying to test them or whatever. Now, imagine what courage it must have taken for Paul to tell the crowd surrounding him turn from these worthless things to the living God. Now, this turning away from something and towards God is the language of repentance, okay? And it's not a popular thing to hear. People don't want to be told that they are not on the right track and they, need to, they should be living differently. People don't want to be told to repent. In the earlier example that I mentioned of these two approaches of sharing the gospel to this uh, pre-believing colleague, notice that although the approach is different, the content is still there. The message is still repentance, just in a far less offensive way. But sometimes, no matter how much we try to share the gospel in a way that would be received most readily, we cannot avoid the fact that the gospel message contains truths that will not always be received well by everyone. For example, other than the message of repentance, another truth of the gospel that is core to the gospel message and many people today find offensive is the idea that the Christian faith is exclusive, that there is no other way to God except through Jesus alone. Okay, many today, uh, especially in uh, Asian cultures, yes, but I think more in, in Western, Western uh, cultures as well, uh, many would call this way of thinking that, you know, your God is the only true God, uh, they will call it arrogant. They call it disrespectful to other religions because you're, you're basically saying that 
only one faith is true, all the others are false, right? But that is a core truth in the gospel message. And so while we do our best to break down cultural barriers to not make the message of the gospel uh, any more difficult to receive than it needs to be, we also need to be careful not to water down the gospel. Now, Peter, in his letter, uh, refers to Jesus not just as a cornerstone, but he also calls him, literally, a rock of offense. And this, this Greek word for offense uh, actually comes from the same word that where we get our word uh, scandalous. Okay, so literally, a scandalous rock. Okay, so Jesus is a scandalous rock, a rock that many people take offense at. And so Paul and Barnabas had incredible courage to preach the truth. They didn't water down the gospel. They didn't say, you know, it's fine. Uh, you can worship Jesus on top of all the other gods that you already worship. Or you don't need to change how you live. Just change your religion only, you know, but you can continue living how you lived. They didn't water down the gospel. So when we share the gospel with others, especially with those who are different from us, we need to share not just wisely and sensitively, but also courageously. Our second question today. Have you ever experienced the fear of causing offense being a barrier to sharing the gospel? And how do you think it can be overcome? And for the kids, are you ever afraid to talk to other people about Jesus? Why or why not? Let's spend two minutes reflecting on this.
Let's look at our last point for today. Now, remember the Jews I mentioned earlier, the ones who were against Paul and Barnabas preaching the gospel? They followed them around to turn people against them. Well, in Lystra, they came and they won the crowd over, you know, probably convincing them that Paul was deceiving them or bad-mounting their gods or you know, what, whatever they said. Uh, the crowd's opinion of them quickly turned from worship, offering sacrifices and, and hailing them for what they had done, to murder. And, and they basically tried to kill Paul, right? They, they stoned him. And this act of stoning is not just, you know, you, you throw pebbles and hope that eventually they, uh, 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 they fall down and die. No, it, it's far more brutal than that. They take a, a rock as, as heavy as they can lift and they throw it at the head and then eventually they when the person's on the ground they smash it and all that and then everybody does the same thing so they stoned paul from worshiping him they they stoned him and they disposed of his body outside the city because they thought that he was dead and so as i was reading this passage i was wondering how do you sacrifice to someone thinking they're a god in one moment and try to stone them to death in the next moment? And I was reminded of another crowd that shouted Hosanna one day and crucified him soon after. And so Jesus also faced a very fickle crowd uh, who would celebrate and, and glorify him and then very quickly turn against him. And so from what we can see, not just the crowd in Lystra or the crowd in, in Jerusalem, but crowds in general can be quite fickle and easily swayed. But what I want to point out is that while opposition to the gospel seems to be coming from these Jews uh, or from the crowd or from Herod, as we saw two weeks ago, or the Sanhedrin, as we saw in many, many chapters earlier in, in Acts, all these sources of opposition, there is actually a spiritual undercurrent throughout all that. And so Paul reminds us in his letter to the Ephesians in, in chapter 6, verse 12, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So we're reminded when it comes to the work, especially when it comes to the work of the gospel, saving of souls for the kingdom of God, spiritual warfare is a very real thing. So while we do not need to fear the devil, we don't need to attribute more to him than he deserves. Uh, we don't need to blame him for, for everything bad, right? Uh, because we, we face this sinful world, our own sinful nature, uh, while we don't need to fear the devil, we should not be surprised when we face opposition in sharing the gospel. And so when I read of this flip-flop of the crowd, even after hearing the gospel message, I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, which says, The God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, 
Don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged. If and when you face opposition in the course of sharing your faith with others, it can be human opposition. It can be that person not wanting to listen, being hard-hearted. Uh, every time you try to bring up the God, something to do with God, they quickly cut you off and they say, no, I don't want to hear. Uh, it can be their family who opposes their, uh, them turning to Christianity. Uh, it can be any form of human opposition. It can even be spiritual opposition. But these oppositions do not have the final word in the advancement of God's kingdom. And if we look at the response of Paul and Barnabas, they went to this city, mission trip, huh? they preached the gospel, and instead of the people receiving the gospel, like in many other cities, they tried to worship them instead, and then after that, turned against them and tried to kill one of them. This seems like a very disastrous response to the gospel, right? But despite that, they did not give up. They did not give in to despair. Uh, some of us, we, when we try to share the gospel once and then they, we, we get a, a cold response and we feel like, Ayah, oh, so painful, Ayah, don't, don't want to try again, don't want to try again. Uh, we see from Paul and Barnabas that, I mean, they got, Paul got stoned, okay, almost to the point of death. And verse 20 tells us that Paul got up after being stoned and, and he was tossed out like a dead body, yeah? Uh, he, he got up. No miraculous healing is mentioned. It is possible that Paul uh, continues the work of the gospel with his injuries. Okay? Horrible cuts and bruises, maybe even fractures, concussion. We don't know. But whether or not Paul was healed miraculously, he doesn't give in to the trauma. He doesn't say, Ayo, that, that time I shared the gospel, I don't want to try again. He, he doesn't give in to trauma. He doesn't get depressed by how the gospel was received in Lystra because the very next day, they leave for another city called Derby, where, in the following verse, they preach the gospel in that city, Derby, and won a large number of disciples. And so we might be tempted to be discouraged when we try to share the gospel, we are shut down or our path is blocked by other people or other circumstances. But remember, the work of evangelism is not ours alone. The gospel and how the gospel is received does not hinge upon our efforts and our ability to convince people and persuade people. Nobody wants the salvation of our family member or our friend or our colleague or our classmate or our neighbour more than God himself. And as a timeless, all-knowing God, he often plays the long game way beyond what we can see, what we can imagine or expect. So whether there's opposition or no opposition, would you simply... Share your faith with others whenever you can, however you can, the best way you can. Let's look at our last question for today. Have you been facing some sort of opposition in sharing the gospel with someone? And so would you take the time to pray for God to make a way 
in his time. And for the kids, have you found it difficult to talk about Jesus with someone? And so parents, you can take this opportunity to pray with your child for God to make a way. Okay, two minutes for this. conclusion, I'd like you to know that we can expect the work of the gospel to not be without its challenges and opposition, but it is still a very worthy work. I'd like you to be sensitive of and prepared for the differences between you and those you share the gospel with. Sorry, share, not sharing. Uh, and do persevere in participating in the Great Commission no matter what opposition you might face. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.